had the privilege of being on his ordination team. And uh, if you haven't been through that, which probably most of you haven't, it's basically an oral examination. Uh, so back when uh, Frank was young and stupid, <laughs> those are his words, not mine. Uh, I think we were both a little young and stupid back then. But um, so I was able to grill him on points of scripture and the ministry, and he did a great job. He passed with flying colors, and we were able to, um, to ordain him. And then I was privileged to be part of the group that uh, called him here as pastor. So, <coughs> Okay, this morning we're going to continue in the book of Ruth. Uh, up in, uh, this morning we're going to look at chapter 3, uh, which is a great honor for me. Chapter 3 is my favorite chapter in the book of Ruth because it's all about Jesus. Uh, now you may know that uh, the New Testament was written in Greek and it's really oriented toward the Western mind. Uh, everything is scientific, kind of clear, laid out, boom, 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 here's the way it is. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and it's oriented more toward uh, the Eastern mind or the Oriental mind. And so it uses a lot of pictures rather than coming out and saying things. And throughout Scripture, I've noticed that God uses visual aids to try to, to minister to us. He uses everything he can to point us to salvation and redemption in his son throughout scripture. And chapter three is just rich. It's full of Jesus and uh, the work of redemption on our behalf. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And that's why I titled this morning's message as the path to redemption, because it really lays out our path to redemption and salvation in Christ. But before we go there, let's look to the Lord, because I need to totally depend on him when I preach and minister so if you would pray with me heavenly father we praise you and worship you and thank you for the god that you are and for all that you have done for us that you haven't left us in our sins you've provided a way out in our helplessness you've provided for us a kinsman redeemer in your son jesus we thank you for that and for all it means to us and i ask that this morning you would speak through me that you would speak to our hearts that you would give us an even greater picture of our redemption and salvation and what it means. And in all of this, that it will glorify you and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and in whom we commit this time to you. Amen. <clears throat> okay, well, Pastor Frank has done a great job of setting things up for me this morning uh, in chapter 3. And... I want to look at, uh, first of all, we'll start with uh, section verses 1 through 5, which I have called seductress or woman of faith. Seductress or woman of faith. So let's look at uh, the first five verses of chapter 3 in Ruth. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman? with whose maids you were, behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. I have a problem with uh, a lot of the commentaries on this, looking at a lot of the 
the commentaries, um, I think they really misunderstand this passage, and I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what's going on in this chapter. Um, some people see you know, perversion you know, or sexual issues in this chapter, and I don't see it that way. Some people see uh, Naomi here as a, a scheming, conniving mother-in-law, um, and I don't see her that way, and I'm going to go through why I, I think differently from that. And they also see um, <coughs> Ruth as a seductress who's trying to seduce Boaz and get a husband. And I don't see it that way either. Um, so I want to start with Naomi. Um, everything about Naomi up to this point in the book has been about Naomi, if you've noticed that. The first two chapters, it's all about herself. Her focus is on herself and uh, her, she has kind of a woe is me attitude. Um, <clears throat> to kind of recap, she and her husband Elimelech uh, left Israel uh, and God's people and God's temple and went to Moab uh, because of the famine. And while she was there, she lost uh, her husband um, and she was left with two sons and two foreigners as daughters-in-law because her sons had married Moabites. Uh, then she lost her two sons. <clears throat> so now she's a widow in a foreign land with really no means of provision. And she starts feeling sorry for herself. And like you know, God has kind of mistreated her. And we get this, whoa, woe is me, um, when her two daughters, Oprah and Ruth, want to follow her back to the presence of God. Um, she says, no, go back home, go to your old gods and your family. I can't do anything for you. I'm miserable. I, there's nothing I can do. I don't even know how I'm going to take care of myself. God's hand has been very heavy on me. And, of course, Orpah returned, but Ruth stayed with her, and she said, no, your God will be my God. So they go back to Bethlehem, and there the women come and greet her, you know, and tell her Naomi. And even then, she says, no, don't call me Naomi. Uh, call me Mara, which is bitter. Call me bitter because my life is bitter. It's been terrible. God has taken away my husband, my sons. Uh, I left here full, but I came back empty. It's just my life is miserable. It's bitter. God's against me. It, it, woe is me. But as Frank pointed out, as God provided and began to work uh, on the lives of Naomi and Ruth, <coughs> Naomi's heart started to soften. And I really see this here in the first verse. She looks at Ruth, and now she calls, she says, Daughter, I need to provide for your security. So she's begun to focus not so much on herself, but now outwardly. Now it's not so much a concern for her as it is for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, that she needs some long-term security. And that's what should happen and what usually happens when we do come to God and we accept Christ. God starts transforming us, and our vision should be less on ourselves and more on others and less what others can do for us, and more on what we can do for other people. And I see that happening here in Naomi, that she's beginning to look outward and look at, at other people and other needs because God has been at work in her life. <clears throat> now, God's provision here is amazing, and Frank said God's been working behind the scenes throughout this, and it's fascinating to me that he brought Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem at just the right time. Did you notice that in the previous chapter? They got back there right at the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, the barley harvest was the first grain harvest in Israel. 
And that was followed immediately by the wheat harvest. So the entire period of harvest lasted eh, between two and three months, typically, depending on the weather and the, how well the crop did and everything else. And the benefit from that, as God has said, is in God's law, he had a provision for widows and orphans and the poor and the needy, is that they had a legal right to go glean in the fields. And so Ruth was able to provide food for them at just the right time when harvest was going on. She could go collect the grain that had fallen. And so for a period of two to three months, uh, she and Naomi would have food to eat and maybe even a little longer if they were able to store some up and keep it. But now the harvest is over and they're starting to process the grain. So the period of gleaning is gone until next year at this time. So almost a year they, don't, they won't have the provision that they had during the, the period of gleaning. And so Naomi is saying, I need to look at your long-term security, something more secure than just this gleaning. Now, a lot of commentators, I think, do what many of us sometimes are prone to do, and that is look at Scripture through the eyes of 21st century Americans. <coughs> but things were different back then, and the culture was different, and it was very, very difficult for single women especially widows without a family, uh, to take care of them, and especially in the case of Ruth, a foreign woman. Um, there weren't a lot of opportunities for women then to make a living. Maybe if they had some talent or ability and had some resources to buy the raw materials, they might be able to eke out a living doing arts or crafts or sewing or something to sell. But most of them had just two options. One was prostitution. And that, of course, was not a good uh, option. That's not a good way to make a living, and it's got a lot of risks inherent in it. And the other was to beg. And so a lot of the women would beg. But that wasn't a dependable uh, means of, of providing for yourself because you're depending on the generosity and the giving of other people. So those were... Basically, if you were a single woman, a widow without a family, um, that's basically the options you had, and neither of those were good. So Naomi is looking at better options here for Ruth. <coughs> and what she's doing, or what she's going to do here, is invoke the Leverite Law. It's called the Leverite Law, or it's also called the Yabron. <coughs> and that goes back to, and Frank uh, referred to this, it goes back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25, verses 5 through 10, where God made provision for women like Ruth. In Deuteronomy 25, <coughs> verses 5 through 10, it says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, which was Ruth's case, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists, 
and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. So Ruth had a, uh, a legal right here to a husband. She had a legal right to demand a husband. Now, some people have said, well, the Levite law might not apply to Ruth because she was a Moabitess, but she was in Israel and she'd been married uh, to an Israelite. And what I see throughout um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and even I think a little bit in Numbers is God says many, many times you shall have one law in Israel and it shall pertain to you and to your servants and to the sojourner who dwells among you. So the Levite law, as far as I can see, would apply to Ruth. So she had the right to demand a husband to care for her. Now, somebody should have stepped up under the law before this time and fulfilled that responsibility, and it hasn't happened yet. Now remember, we're in the period of judges, which was a period of back, backsliding and people not fully obedient to, to the will of God. <coughs> so no one had stepped forward. So what I see Naomi doing here is invoking God's law and trying to start the ball rolling because no man has stepped up to perform his duty. Now, guys, it's unfortunate, but sometimes we don't always fulfill our spiritual responsibilities before God. And oftentimes it takes the urging of a godly woman to get us motivated to do what we should have been doing in the beginning. And that's what I see Naomi doing here is invoking uh, the law on behalf of Ruth and, uh, and trying to get the, man, the men to fulfill their spiritual obligations to Ruth. Now, there's another example of this in Scripture. Uh, we're not going to look there. I'll leave that to you if you're interested in it. You may know the story back in uh, Genesis chapter 35 of Tamar and, Ju and Judah. Uh, Tamar married uh, the son, the oldest son of Judah, but it says that God killed him, so Judah gave his next son to Tamar as a husband, um, and it says God killed him as well. So she was a widow, twice over, Tamar was, with no sons. <clears throat> so the Leverite law still applied, but Judah was afraid since his first two sons had been killed that if he gave his third son to Tamar, God would kill that son too, so he refused to obey the Leverite law. And Tamar uh, took action on her own. Uh, actually, the way Ruth and Naomi do it, I think, is much better than Tamar's method. If you're familiar with the story, uh, she actually seduced Judah and had a child <coughs> by him. But I don't see any con condemnation either by Judah or in Scripture of what she did. I think she went about it in the wrong way, but she was uh, fulfilling God's law, the Leverite law. And interestingly, the son that she had from that relationship, his name was Perez. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, Perez is in the lineage of the Messiah. He's one of Jesus' ancestors. So again, showing God's mercy and that I think, you know, Tamar probably went about it the wrong way, but she did have the right under the law to demand a husband. 
And so here did Ruth. Now, Naomi is going about it in a different way, not even doing it the way in, in, uh, that we're told in Deuteronomy. <coughs> Ruth isn't going to go publicly say, hey, nobody's fulfilling this law. She's not going to take anybody's sandal or spit in anybody's face, at least not at this point. Um, what Naomi does is come up with kind of a subtle, diplomatic, private way of getting things started uh, and doing it on behalf of Ruth. Um, and she recognizes that Boaz was a near kinsman. The kinsman redeemer had to be the closest relative um, to be a redeemer. But she knows Boaz, knows he's a kinsman. Uh, there's been some association because Ruth has been gleaning in his fields. So that's the place to start. So she says, go to Boaz, and we'll see if we can get this, this ball rolling as far as the, the Leverite law. And she advises Ruth to prepare herself. And again, I think there's misunderstanding there too. She says, wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes. Now, I don't see that as seductive acts, you know, trying to entice Boaz here. I see it as a picture of the start of our redemption with washing herself being representative of us confessing our sins, you know, doing a, a spiritual cleansing. <coughs> And anointing herself, preparing herself for service, and putting on her best clothes as putting on the new life, repentance, leaving our old sins uh, and our old nature behind and putting on the new. And I see that as a beautiful picture of that. And that's what we need to do as part of our redemption. Um, if you're familiar with the temple worship, you know that before the priests were allowed to go in and serve God, they had to wash themselves, uh, they had to be anointed, and they had to put on special clothes. They weren't allowed to go into the temple in their street clothes. They had special clothes for meeting with God. And then when they left the temple, then they took those off because those were holy garments when they went to meet with the holy God. And I see that here as a picture uh, in, in what Naomi is recommending to Ruth. Even in uh, Jesus' time, there were uh, ceremonial pools where if you went into the temple, you could bathe yourself before you went in. And that's what we do, the first step in redemption. <coughs> now, some of you, many of you, some of you have commented uh, on how I dress, the clothes I wear when I come in to worship. Um, I also do the same thing when I serve as a Gideon or whenever I'm ministering. I try to put on some of my best clothes and, and look my best when I come, and there's several reasons for that, but one of those is because of this passage, you know, this verse. Um, another one, uh, the main one, is in the book of Malachi. Now, in Malachi chapter 1, God is criticizing the Jews for their sacrifices. They were to bring their best to sacrifice to God, the best of their flock, the best of their, their produce, to bring their best, but they've gotten in the habit of keeping the best for themselves and sacrificing lesser for God. They would sell the best because it would bring a better price, um, or they'd keep it for themselves because the, it was the best, and they would give the inferior to God. And in Malachi 1, God says, I'm tired of this. I don't want your sacrifices. And in verse 8, he says, you would not even sacrifice this or give this to your governor. You wouldn't give this to your governor. 
And years ago, when I read that, it occurred to me, you know, if I had a meeting with the governor of the state of New Mexico, I'd probably wear a, at least a jacket and a tie, if not a suit. And it occurred to me, if I would do that for my governor, how can I do any less for the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings? And so that's part of the reason that I try to dress up and look my best when I come into church. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not criticizing you. I'm not condemning any of you. I'm not telling you you need to dress better. That's, that's not my point. The way I dress is between God and me. And the way you dress, that's between you and God. And I'm not going to get in the middle of that, okay? So I'm not saying I need to see all you guys in suits next week and you women in dress. That's not it. <laughs> but this, I would suggest, is that spiritually you do that. That as you're preparing to come into worship, as you're on your way to church, that you spiritually cleanse yourself, that you confess your sins before God, and that you repent of your sins, put on your best spiritual clothes as you come in to worship the King of Kings. <coughs> so that's what I think, again, is going on here. And then she also says, um, <coughs> wait until um, he has finished his work, wait till he's finished the threshing, he's eaten, he's had something to drink, uh, his heart is merry, and he's ready to, to lay down. Again, I don't think that's conniving, I think that's being very diplomatic. What she's saying is don't bother him during business hours. Now, wait till the work is done. Now, th that's good advice from you know, kind of a standpoint of trying to get with him, because his mind is going to be off the work. It's the end of the day. During the, the work, his mind is probably going to be on his work. And, and that's good advice for us, too. I've known and worked with a number of Christians who, you know, bless their hearts, they try to, to serve God on their jobs. But <clears throat> I've seen too many basically take advantage of employers and spending time on, at the office or on the job um, doing things of God instead of doing what their employer is paying them for. And so that's a good point for us, too. Don't, if you're in a restaurant and you're trying to, to share Christ with your wait staff, just be conscientious that if the place is full and they're really busy and rushing from one place to another, that's probably not the time to get into a long theological discussion. And so that's what I see here. She says, wait until the threshing is done. You know, and he's had a meal, had something to drink, he's relaxed, you can be alone with him. It'll be private. Uh, nobody will be embarrassed or offended. And, and he will be more attentive to, to your plea and what you're saying. So that's what I see going on here in this passage. <coughs> now, some people have think that what she's doing is getting Boaz drunk and then seducing him. And I don't see it that way. I don't see anything in the passage that indicates he was drunk. Now, he was in a good mood. He was feeling good. But... In the middle of the night when he wakes up, as we'll see and talks to you, he seems very coherent and very in it, not drunk, not hungover or anything else. <clears throat> and I've experienced this myself, and maybe you have, um, when I'm out working outside all day, doing hard work, exercising, uh, starting to get a little worn out, come in, have a good meal, uh, maybe a glass of wine, and uh, feeling merry. You're, you're feeling good. Some of you have been through, probably some of you have been through that too. You're relaxed, um, you're just ready to, you know, for anything. And that's the time <coughs> that Naomi says, then go to him. 
he's feeling really good, he's more attentive, all the, the chores and the pressures and the issues of the day are gone, he's relaxed, you know, that's when you'll go to him. <coughs> so very private, very discreet, um, not public scandal or spin, spitting or anything like that. So that's what I see. I don't see anything uh, perverted here, anything wrong. It, it seems natural to me. So that's the advice. And Ruth says, okay, I will do uh, what you want. I'll do what you say. So she was going to be obedient. So that's what I see in this first passage. I see two women of faith, uh, not a, a seductress. So then we get to the next passage, verses 6 through 13. <clears throat> so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. <coughs> Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Okay, again, I call this the way to redemption. And again, it's a picture of our redemption in Christ and our, as our kinsman redeemer. Again, I don't see um, Ruth seducing him when he's drunk. You have to understand the culture and the history of the time. Boaz was working, he was threshing the grain and on the threshing floor. Now, some of the threshing floors were just open air threshing floors. Some of them were inside a structure, and I think that's probably what this was. It was a structure, uh, kind of like our modern barns, uh, which would have a big opening and a place where they could thresh out the, the grain and an opening so that the wind could flow through and carry the chaff out and they'd be left with the grain. <clears throat> Scripture doesn't tell us, but that's kind of what I think this is. <coughs> so he finishes his work, has his, his dinner, has a glass of wine or two, feeling good, and right there he lays down in the barn or whatever by the grain. And, and Ruth goes in, uncovers his feet, and lays down with him. Now, that's not a sexual thing, as many commentators in our day try to make it out to be. But you have to recognize there are a lot of things going on then that are different today. For one thing, most people in those days lived in a one-room structure. Uh, in, in some parts of the world, that's still the same today. Uh, nomads in, in Arabia and uh, Asia, parts of Asia, live in tents. It's, it's a one-room structure, and some have buildings that's just a single room. They're not like us where we've got you know, a separate kitchen, dining room, the parents have their own bedroom, children have a bedroom, you may even have a guest bedroom. It wasn't like that. Everything was done in one room. And so they all slept together in the same room. They also 
Most people uh, would have two changes of, well, one change of clothes so that they could wear one while the other was being washed, and that was it. Um, they didn't have a full wardrobe, a closet full of clothes that they could choose from, like us. They didn't have much. And they would sleep in their clothes. They didn't have pajamas uh, or nightgowns or sexy negligee uh, or anything like that. Ruth didn't go down uh, to Victoria's Secret and get some sexy negligee you know, to lie down with Boaz. They, they, she put on her best clothes. People slept in their clothes, and that's still done today in some parts of the world. And so the servants sleep with their masters in the same room as their masters, but they're all fully clothed. There's nothing wrong about it. They also, the, the servants would sleep at the master's feet to indicate that they were subservient to the master, that they weren't master, he was, and they were dependent on him. So they would sleep at his feet. And that's what uh, Ruth is doing here, sleeping at, her, at his feet and, and introduces herself as his maid. So she sees the relationship there in the proper manner. They would also, the servants would sleep perpendicular to the master. So I want you to get a picture of that. Okay, you have, you have Boaz sleeping in one direction. You've got Ruth at his feet sleeping in another direction. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of a clock. The way they're sleeping, the way they're lying, or probably were in the custom of the time, they formed a cross. So you see what God is doing here is a picture in the Old Testament. He's presenting a picture of our redemption. That as, as Ruth cleansed herself, anointed herself, put on her best clothes, <coughs> when we come to our kinsman redeemer, we need to confess our sins, prepare ourselves for his service, um, and, and put on our best, repent, put on the new, the new life in Christ. Then she goes in and lays at his feet, at the feet of the cross, as a picture of our humbling ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And then the cross as a symbol of our redemption. So I see this as a beautiful picture that God is trying to get across to us of our redemption in his son. <coughs> So, again, it, it, it's nothing improper, nothing out of place here. <coughs> in the middle of the night, something wakes him up. We're not told what it is. Some commentators have said maybe it's because his feet are uncovered, and in the middle of the night his feet get cold and he wakes up. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But it says in the middle of the night, Boaz woke up. So now we're in the middle of the night. It's dark. It's quiet. Everybody else is asleep. Perfect time for Ruth and, and Boaz to have some privacy to work out this Liberate law. <coughs> and she says, I am your maid, nor I am your servant, and says, you're a close relative, cover me. And I like that. Put your covering over me, which again is a symbol of our redemption in Christ. Now, I used to think for many years, um, I, especially in times of distress, or if I was really stressed, I would think, oh, I wish God would just come down physically and wrap me in his arms like a loving father and make the world go away. Have you ever thought, felt that way? I thought, if he would just wrap me in his garment, you know, and uh, I always wanted to be wrapped in God's garments, you know, be covered. Well, several years ago, my wife Judith gave me a prayer shawl 
which I love because it makes me feel, and I wear this and pray, like I am covered in God's garments. And it's like when I wrap myself in this to pray, somehow it's like the world disappears. Everything is gone. It's just me and God privately, personally, together. It also has the, uh, the practical application. When Judah sees me in this, she knows that I'm meeting with my heavenly father, and she'll leave me alone until we're done. <laughs> but that's the picture I get here of Ruth. Cover me. She's basically saying, I'm a poor maid. I can't save myself. I can't redeem myself. I need a redeemer. Please redeem me. So again, a picture uh, of our redemption in Christ. <coughs> Psalm 32 says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So the covering represents the covering of our sins in Christ's blood. Psalm 91.4 says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. And that's how I feel when I'm in my prayer shawl, and that's what Ruth is looking forward to here. Basically a plea for salvation. Now, all of this that we've covered here, if you think about it, it's what's in what we call the sinner's prayer. Right? You might be familiar, probably familiar with the sinner's prayer. We confess our sins. We confess our, we, we humble ourselves before Christ, admit that we can't save ourselves, and we ask Jesus to be our redeemer. Well, that's what's going on here with Ruth and Boaz. And again, I think there's nothing wrong here because, as Frank has pointed out, Boaz is an honorable, godly man. And here he calls uh, Ruth an honorable, godly woman. Nothing wrong in what she's done. <clears throat> very humbly, very subtly, very privately brought up the issue of the Leverite law in a very diplomatic way. And Boaz recognizes that and praises her for it. And also says, you're doing the right thing. You're not going after the bad boy. And he says, you're not going after the, the hot stud. You know, you're not looking to marry because of physical attraction. You're not going after you know, the young men. And you're not a gold digger. You're not going after the rich guy. You're not going to try to marry for money. right? You're following God's will and seeking his will in, in choosing your mate. And young people, that is good advice. I can tell you as someone who has been happily married for over 48 years now, that if you wait until God shows you the right mate, not looking at the, the hottie, not looking at you know, the physical, but a godly man or woman that God has chosen and designed specifically for you, it's going to work out better for you in the long run. Trust me, I've got over 48 years of experience with God, and I'm always impressed almost every day with my wife how God has designed her specifically for me. And that basically is what some of you women are smiling so that is basically what um, is happening here with Ruth. She's seeking God's will, following God's law for the right mate. And as we'll see later, God does bless the relationship, and it works out <coughs> well. Also, it's not like Boaz. Now, there may have been some attraction between them up till now, but it's not like he's really got the hots for her. And he's drooling over her because she's seducing him because he's willing to step aside. 
I mean, if he really wanted her, I think he would have said, oh, hey, now's my opportunity, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll redeem you, I'll marry you. What he says is, well, yeah, I'm a, a close relative, but I'm only second in line. There's another one that is closer um, than I am, is a closer relative. So really the responsibility is his. And that may be also why Boaz hasn't acted as a kinsman redeemer up till now. It wasn't his responsibility. It was the responsibility of this other one. But he says, okay, he says, basically, I will be your advocate. I'll take this matter up. I'll talk to the other relative. And if he is willing to marry you and redeem you, great. God's will is fulfilled. But if he won't fulfill his responsibility under God, then I will step up to the plate and I will redeem you myself. Sometimes we get in situations like that. I've been, uh, well, in fact, even this morning, actually, I was number two. Uh, Frank had somebody else in line uh, to preach this morning uh, who couldn't do it. He had a, uh, a, another commitment he couldn't get out of. And so I'm number two. So it's like, all right, the other person couldn't or wouldn't, whatever, fulfill the responsibility, I'll take it up. And I've been in that situation, maybe you have, where there's someone else that either can't or won't do God's will, and you get called on next. Don't worry that you're second in line, just like Boaz. Hey, if the other person works it out, fine. If not, I'll step up. That's not what's important. What's important is that God's will is done and that we are obedient to him. And that's what I see Boaz doing, saying there's another one who has the responsibility. If I'll bring it up to his attention. If he takes on the responsibility, great. Everything's perfect. But if he won't, then I will. I will do it because I want to make sure that God's will is done here. <clears throat> so that's what, again, what I see here in, in Boaz. And then there's also <coughs> um, the protection, and I'll get into that more into this next section. But when he says stay here for the rest of the night, I think that's for her protection. And not because of, again, anything um, out of sorts. So let's go on to the last section, which I called loving care in action. Loving care in action, verses 14 through 18. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then he went into, Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now we've seen Boaz care and concern uh, for Ruth up to this point. And again, I don't see it as a romantic relationship up to here. The way I look at it is Boaz is a more mature believer who's protecting a new convert. Remember, uh, Ruth came from Moab. She was a Moabitess. She left everything to follow Jehovah and come and be with his, his people. So she's like a new Christian to us. <clears throat> and Boaz takes her under his wing provides for her with the grain. And again, this is the time of judges. It's a dangerous time for single women, especially foreign single women that don't have a husband or family to protect them. 
And we get hints of that throughout the first few chapters, especially in chapter two, where it says several times, don't go to any other field, tells his workers, don't abuse her, don't take care of her, don't do anything wrong. Um, and I think he's doing that to protect a new convert. Think of what might have happened with Ruth had she been in the field and been attacked, been robbed, been beaten, been raped, uh, been mistreated in some way. Maybe she would have said, you know, I think I made a mistake coming here, following Jehovah. This, this, this isn't right. These people are not good people. I was better off back in Moab. I think I'm going to go back home. You know, Satan, his first attack is to try to keep us from Christ in the first place. Keep us from being redeemed. Keep us from being saved. Failing in that, his next step is to try to destroy our witness and our testimony and get us to backslide and get us to go back to our old way of life. And I see a picture here of Boaz trying to make sure that that doesn't happen to Ruth. <laughs> and here, in the case of staying until morning, spending the night, I don't see anything sexual in that, and then leaving when it's dim, before when it's light enough, uh, but before anyone can recognize it again, I don't see if they're trying to sneak this or hide anything because there's something improper being done. I think he's telling her stay here until morning because night is very dangerous. Um, there were Bethlehem was a small town, rural area. There could have been wild animals out roaming late at night. Uh, night is when a lot of criminals do their thing because they can hide in the darkness. Um, it's a dangerous time for women alone. In fact, both of our daughters have been robbed at gunpoint in Albuquerque at night. So now they don't go at night, they don't go shopping at night, and when they go do their shopping, they go together in the daytime. Uh, so it's still dangerous at night for women alone in town. And I think Boaz recognizes that and saying, stay here where it's safe until morning. <coughs> That's how I see it. And then also he's trying to protect her from gossip. You know, sometimes we're prone to jump to conclusions and start gossip. And I think he says, Wait until it's dim. So it's light enough that it's safe, but it's dark enough that not a lot of people will see it and tells his servants, don't, don't take, tell anybody that she was here, right? Because what he wants to avoid is, oh, you know where Ruth was last night? I saw her leaving early this morning. I wonder what she and Boaz were doing. What do you suppose they were up to? And I think that that's what Boaz was trying to protect her from that. And find it kind of disappointing that I see a lot of commentators falling into that gossip that Boaz was trying to prevent. Uh, I don't see it happening that way. I see a man who is providing uh, in a loving manner um, and uh, providing for her. And he also says, I will take up the case. So he's becoming her advocate. He says, okay, I will take it from here. She got the ball rolling. He says, I'll handle it. Let me tell first thing in the morning, I'll bring your case up and, and I'll, I'll handle it for you. So he is now her advocate. And he provided, continued to provide for her and for Naomi. So he gave him grain again. And I think it's interesting that he says here, don't go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. I see Boaz as a generous man, a man who's trying to help others. And I think he's trying to convey that to Ruth as well. You know, that God has given me an abundance. I've got plenty of grain, finished the harvest. I, 
and here, I'm giving this to you, and you in turn share with others. You in turn share with Naomi. That again is how it's supposed to work. That's what God expects of us. When he blesses us with goods and provides for us in abundance, he expects us to use that to provide for others. And that's why we tithe. That's why we support the ministry. That's why we, we help the hungry and others doing again what Boaz is doing, being generous with what God has given us, recognizing everything we have is really God's. It's not ours. And so we can be generous with it. And I think he's trying to convey that over to Ruth here as well. <coughs> so I see this whole chapter as really a picture of our redemption from confession all the way through to a new life in Christ where we are concerned about others, help others, uh, and provide for others. And so uh, I see this whole chapter as full of Jesus Christ and a good picture of him as our kinsman redeemer. The first thing here to kind of summarize everything I see in this chapter or most of what I see is Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer, if you look back at, at Deuteronomy that we looked at, the kinsman redeemer had two responsibilities. The first one was to redeem lost property. Redeem lost property. Well, Christ did that. When God created us, when he created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over the earth. He basically signed away the deed, the title to the earth, to Adam and Eve. He said, rule over it. Have dominion over it. It's yours. You know, the land belongs to you. <coughs> I give it to you. Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, then they ceded ownership of the property, the earth, the world, over to Satan. And so then it became his. And that's why in places in Scripture it refers to Satan as the god of this world. And that's why Satan, when he tempted Christ, could offer him the kingdoms of the world. At that time, they were his. But when Jesus died, then he defeated Satan and he reclaimed title of the world. And so now the world is his. And that's why someday he will come back and rule as legitimate king here on earth. So he fulfilled the first requirement for a kinsman redeemer. He has redeemed the property that we lost. The second responsibility was to raise up children in the name of the deceased. <coughs> raise up children to continue the heritage, to continue the lineage. And Jesus has done that too. You know, we're told, uh, in, Paul tells us in Romans, John tells us in, in 1 John, that in Christ we become God's children. We are children of God in Christ. So Christ is continuing the lineage through his work on the cross. He's raising up children for God. And if you're in Christ, you're one of them. So he's also fulfilled the second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. <coughs> the um, kinsman redeemer had to have certain requirements, um, and that is he had to be a, a near kinsman and serve as a redeemer. So Jesus had, as God, he had to be God because only God can redeem us because all of us are sinners. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't redeem each other. So in order to qualify as redeemer, Jesus had to be God. And that's why he is God. 
but he also had to be one of us. He had to be a kinsman, a close kinsman. And that's one of the reasons that Jesus had to become man. So he not only qualified as redeemer, but he also qualified as a near kinsman, the nearest kinsman. So he has fulfilled that responsibility for us. <coughs> Ruth humbled herself. She slept at Boaz's feet as a servant, and she asked for redemption. And that's exactly what we do when we say the sinner's prayer, when we come to Jesus, confess our sins, humble ourselves, acknowledge that we can't save ourselves, and ask him to be our redeemer. And then also the way they laid together perpendicular is a symbol of the cross, which is the symbol of our redemption. So I see that in here too in this passage as well. And then Boaz took up her case and became her advocate. And again, we're told in, in 1 John that Jesus is our advocate, that we have an advocate with the Father who pleads our case with the Father. And we see that illustrated in Boaz becoming Ruth's um, provider and, and, and advocate. And just as he provided uh, for Ruth, Jesus never hesitates to intercede on our behalf and provide for us. So he is our perfect kinsman redeemer as illustrated in this chapter. And so I see this chapter as pointing to Jesus as our kinsman redeemer and the work of our redemption. <coughs> so Jesus had to be God to redeem and he had to be man to be our kinsman and he has fulfilled that perfectly. Have you humbled yourself at the feet of the Savior and accepted Jesus as your kinsman, redeemer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture you've given us this morning of what it means to be saved by our kinsman, redeemer. We thank you for the perfect plan that you had for dealing with our sins and for the way it shows your love and your mercy and your care and your provision. Help us to not lose that message and help us to carry it to others. We thank you for all this means to us. Jesus, we thank you and praise you as our kinsman redeemer. Thank you for redeeming us and for caring for us, for being our advocate even now, even as we sing today that you still argue our case before your Father. Thank you for all of that. May we go out of here refreshed and blessed in our kinsman redeemer. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you all.